This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. On today's episode, I'm talking to one of my favorite writers, Damon Lindelof. He is a screenwriter, a comic book writer, and a producer who is responsible for some of the coolest and most engaging shows on television, like Lost, The Leftovers, and most recently, Watchmen. Just last week, Watchmen was nominated for an insane 26 Emmys, leading all Emmy nominations. So yeah, Damon's a badass. We recorded this episode back in April, just as we were all beginning to settle into only seeing people on Zoom, and honestly, it feels like two years ago. But I loved getting to talk with him. We first met a couple years back because we did a panel on activism and storytelling and what the responsibility of storytellers, like writers, actors, and folks who make TV and film look like in terms of standing up for what's right, engaging in politics, and shifting culture. So I knew he was going to be the most incredible podcast guest, and he shared some really amazing stories about how he got started in the industry and how Lost was developed and really kicked off his career. We discussed the impacts of depression, even when from the outside it looks like everything is going amazingly well. He talked about finding a balance between life and career. And we nerded out on all of the research and the collaboration that goes into his projects, Watchmen especially, and what he learned from that experience and how he's focusing his lens on activism and justice moving forward. Enjoy. I'm so curious about the wallpaper behind you because 
I have a photo of one of my best friends standing in a bathroom in Chicago in front of that same rabbit um, wallpaper. And I'm like, my, I've never seen my, that before. What is that? My wife found it. She finds amazing wallpaper. So she'll, cool. she'll know where it came from. But if, this is like my entire office. Um, Whoa. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And at first I was like, we were like, should we just do one wall? And then we had, and then we put it up and I was like, I kind of want the chaos of all, of being surrounded by all these rabbits. So there we are. I love it. Yeah. Well, it's awesome. when you, when you think about being creative, like you literally have to jump, you have to dive down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Alice in Wonderland is so, the, uh, I don't know. It is the, my, my production company, which is not actually a company. It's just a, a title card at the end of my shows. It's called white rabbit. And so, yeah, that the idea is like, you know, mm. you follow the white rabbit into the world that is, you know, just parallel to the world, the real world, which is less exciting. But, uh, I try to put white rabbits in everything that I've worked on. Um, uh, because that's the the invitation to adventure, as it were. I love that. I'm I'm very much. I'm like I'll sign up for that adventure. Let's go. Let's do it. Follow that rabbit. All right. Well, let's jump in. Um, thank you so much for being here. We've been trying to schedule this for ages, and and here we are now. You know, digitally distanced, but connecting nonetheless. I'll tell. I'll take any connection I can get at this point in the game. It's uh, it's uh, it's a very strange time. It really is. I I think back to things. I, this morning, I, I woke up really early for some reason and was sitting looking through some photos of things we all used to do, and I and I just thought, wow, remember trains? Remember concerts? You know, and I think about how we met. Remember conferences? You know, oh, we right. spoke on that amazing panel together. Yeah, yeah. And that was such a cool day. It was you and me and uh, Sarah Gubbins and George Takei. And, That's right. And we had this cool conversation about art and social responsibility and where they intersect and how you can how you can be, you know, political and, and, and stand for something when you're telling stories and... I don't know. I, I just, I remember the day so fondly and I, I wonder when we'll all get to do that again. Yeah. And we were shaking hands and touching food and standing shoulder to shoulder. And then, you know, and then afterwards, you know, one of the great things about those panels, and I can't remember who sponsored that particular conference, but do you, do you remember? Yeah, it was the Milken Institute. Oh, right, the Milken Institute. So anyway, it had this sort of like, you know, it was like professionals. It wasn't like quote unquote, a fan event. Um, but the cool things about, about those kind mm. of panels is they're fans too. And so after the panel ends mm. and you're just kind of milling around, people are coming up to George and sharing stories with him or wanting to take selfies with him. And to me that as someone who was literally born and raised a fan, you know, that was the culture in which I, I grew up. And so the idea of, you know, mm. saying to myself, if I ever get to be on the other side of this, if I ever get to be the person that people are standing in line to have, you know, 10 or 20 seconds with, oh my God, that would be the greatest thing ever. And I'm going to be so nice to everyone because some, some people weren't nice, you know, some people just kind of like scampered off and, mm. and didn't have that interaction. And so that to me is 
the the coolest part of it. And one of my fears about you know a post um, COVID nineteen world, even even post you know vaccine, is that right now our brains are being wired rewired for like stranger danger. The idea of like you know putting mm-hmm. your arm putting your arm around a fan or taking their phone and and taking a selfie with it you know or just like engaging now there's like a a, a mm-hmm. real biological excuse for we ca- I I cannot interact with you like um this is a potentially mm-hmm. unsafe interaction and that really makes me sad uh a on a selfish level I'm going to miss it but b it it you know, the intimacy of, of what we do is an illusion, particularly for those Mm -hmm. of us who work in television. From the, from the perspective of the people who watch our stuff, we're in their homes. It's a much different experience than a movie theater Mm -hmm. where you're going, there's a more formal environment, you're seated, the, the, the images, you know, 10 to 20 times larger than you are. But in TV, everything's to scale. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so you form real relationships with the characters because they're in your house and yeah. you watch them while you're sitting on your couch, you know, in your boxer shorts. And mm-hmm. um, and anything that, like, maintains that intimacy in the real world, I think, is a net positive. But I think that uh, it's going to be very hard to come by, and I'm mourning that. And I think, too, the the intimacy of TV, something that strikes me is the things that we are present for that we're unaware of. You know, to your point, we're in someone's house. They're on their couch. Maybe they're sitting around in their boxers or their bathrobe, but maybe they've just lost a parent or they've gone through a devastating breakup or they're battling cancer and and we're there with them through that thing. And and it's been such a like it, it's a heart stopper for me when someone says, oh yeah, I, I did six months of chemo and watched your show from start to finish all nine seasons. And it was like the one thing that made me happy. I, I, I've come to know and, and be friends with a girl who is a fan of, of my first show and has followed me through other things in my career, but she was being treated for Lyme disease and her mom was making little paper cutouts of us uh, stills from a show that I had worked on and putting them all over her IV bags. Wow. And like, it makes me want to cry even thinking about it. And she would like, you know, tweet me a photo or like tag me in the thing on Instagram. And I would just sit there and be like, this is the most, this is such a crazy thing because it's so emotional and I don't even know this person, but I, I know this person. It, it's such a cool and crazy thing that we get to do. And, and I know what you mean about what it feels like for the fan dynamic to reverse. Cause I, I'm such a fan. Like people laugh at me still. I, I remember last year, my best friend came with me to this, you know, event thing that we had to do for for uh, the Screen Actors Guild. And she was like, what is wrong with you? You are a famous person. You can't treat other famous people this way. And I was like, but I don't, I still feel like the 13 year old kid who's like, holy shit, that's my favorite person from my favorite show. Like, I don't know how to be quote unquote, like normal or cool. I don't have, I don't have that. Uh, I'm exactly the same way. And, you know, in the, in the rare, (laughs) rare instances when, you know, I get to go to award shows or those kinds of things where you're literally, 
you know, like I walked into the rest, uh, we went to the AFI uh, uh, celebration for Watchmen this past year. And I went into the restroom and basically like the entire mm. cast of Succession was next to me at the urinals. Like literally, I like, they, they were all there. And I was just like, don't stare. <laughs> don't say anything stupid. Don't make a corny <laughs> joke. Don't tell them this now is not the time to tell them how much you love their show. Like, um, just be cool. Um, and, uh, and I think that's yeah. great. I mean, like, this is the, you know, this is the coolest part of, you know, of our industry. And I think that there's a level of inflated narcissism from a fan perspective. Cause I remember when mm. I was 12 or 13 years old and I saw Twin Peaks and I was like, this show was written just for me. Like David Lynch just must know me. <laughs> he must know me. And if I ever run into him, he will recognize me. And that's just, those are the thoughts of a crazy person, um, <laughs> of a deranged lunatic, um, like in a, you know, like in a Robert, you know, in, a, in, a, in an early 90s Robert De Niro movie, like The Fan or, or Cape Fear or King of Comedy. But I, I think that, uh, you know, that's the most exciting thing when you, when you catalyze that level of passion you know, when that's like the deepest connection mm. you can make with someone when they've, they, when they kind of feel like you're speaking their language, like that's, that's, that's the most positive side of it. Yeah. You said the perfect thing because I, I love when I start with people on, on the show to, to go backwards because to your point, you, you know, you, you're coming into this space as this writer and creator and producer and and there's people who are fans of what you do. And I always like to find out who the people that I'm a fan of that I'm interviewing, who they were when they were little. And I love that you're like, oh no, I was a deranged lunatic when I was 12. <laughs> My, the, the, fan, the fan culture can be so intense. But so what what were you like as a kid? You know, who were you at 10 or 12? Were you were you always telling stories? Were you were you obsessed with the sort of magical world of film and television even then? Yes, to all of the above. I mean, I think that you know my my story is 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 not unique by any stretch of the imagination. I was raised in northern New Jersey, um, in a suburb of of the city. My dad was an executive at at Citibank. And my mom was a teacher um, in Spanish Harlem, uh, PS 128. Um, and, uh, and so we lived in this, this town called Teaneck that was, you know, the, the suburbs that you would imagine. And Damon, so, do you know that my mom grew up in Teaneck? What? No. Yeah. Yeah. My mom grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. I rocked around Teaneck and Paramus my entire childhood. I worked at the at the Cineplex Odeon Route Four Tenplex in Paramus for five years. That's where that's my origin story, and I don't Wait, know. Wait, that's where... your twenty. That's your twenty minute movie theater. Yeah, that's it. Okay, I'm giving it away. I'm going to let you tell the story for the audience. But this is a this, I'm having a moment yeah, here. No, it's amazing. <laughs> so it was one of those. You know, I grew up in the in the late seventies, early eighties, riding my dirt bike around. I was. I was a nerdy mm. kid. Uh, I liked sports, but I wasn't particularly good at them. So, you know, but I, but I tried to play them. And, but my, 
my passion was always telling stories. I was a voracious reader mm. and I liked writing stories. Mm. And um, and my dad was a huge sci-fi um, comic book nerd and, and, a, and a cinephile. Mm. And so he would bring me into New York to see like, you know, Orson Welles retrospectives or, you know, or musicals. They had like a Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, retrospective at the um, uh, um, in, in New York, where they had at the Zigfield like a live orchestra doing the score for Oklahoma or The King and I wow. or Carousel. So there, I was exposed to sort of like a very wide range of um, of of great movies and television. And my dad was very verbose and all that stuff. And that's where we connected. I don't, we, we did not have a close emotional relationship, but like we had very common interests. And so he curated all of that, Mm. all that stuff for me. And I think that, you know, starting in 1977, which is when I I saw Star Wars for the first time, I was four. Um, And then, you know, and then going into the early eighties, sort of the, the Stephen, Stephen King books. And then, um, and then Watchmen, which I read in, in 86, you know, over the course of those were the formative sort of like the Holy Trinity, Star Wars, Stephen King books, you know, Watchmen that kind of like formed the, you know, the hubris within me to say, I'm going to, I want to make stuff like this. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. and that was carefully cultivated by my dad and my mom, who was a reading teacher and had an a, a, a real love for for books as well. They really, you know, kind of pushed me to uh, to do all that. And so, you know, I found my people. Mm-hmm. You know, in 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 school in high school, I was like I was ducky. You know, a little bit. Um, you know, I, I was popular. <laughs> I was I was a popular kid in the unpopular crowd. You know, like um, and then ultimately became a theater kid. Uh, with very limited um, acting and singing potential, but that's where that's where my people were, and um, and then that started to migrate into a real desire to, you know, be a writer, um, and um, that was kind of uh, you know that that was like my my relative persona. I don't know how other people would describe me, but that's certainly certainly how I saw my myself. Mm. Do you think? You know, you say your mom being a reading teacher was really impactful and and especially that this this kind of trading of stories and and literary experiences and 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 filmic experiences was like that that was your relationship with your dad. Do you think that those things helped encourage you to start writing? And I guess that I ask because I know so many people who love stories and they love movies and books and all of it, but, but they don't ever start writing. So what do you think, what do you think got you putting pen to paper and, and beginning to tell your own stories or invent your own stories? It, it felt more of a compulsion than a choice. You know, I mean, I think that like Mm. there was certainly for the, you know, the first two decades of my life, my writing only brought me joy. It wasn't until I, you know, I started pursuing a course in, can I make a living at this? Then there were real stakes, right? Like then you, then it's sort of like, 
it's it's a little bit the the equivalent of like I really love playing basketball, but now it's time for me to go try out, yeah. <laughs> and and there are going to be college scouts mm. in the in the uh, stands, and if I don't have what it takes, they're going to tell me, and I'll know that this thing that I love and I feel destined to do is mm. is not going to happen for me. Mm. But until that point where it was sort of like it's time to make a run at this, which sort of like you know, officially happened when I graduated college um, and I came out to LA for the first time. I still was of the mindset of, I'm going to spend four or five years in LA just learning the business um, from all different angles. And I'll just, I'll just write nocturnally or, you know, in my spare time, but I'm not going to let anybody read anything yet. I'm just going to try to get better and better at it. Cause I really, knew, I understood mm. that I only had one shot, you know, that the moment that I put a piece of material into somebody influential's hands, that if they said to me, this is not good, that it would, it would break me emotionally. Like, I mean, I'm not, mm. uh, I feel like I'm simultaneously very confident and ambitious um, and also wildly insecure. And that feels like it's a, it's a paradox. Um, but both things are true. Like they're, they're simultaneous. Yeah. And so like this idea of, you know, my wife, who is one of my biggest fans and cheerleaders is always kind of baffled by how upset I get when people are hard on my stuff. And she's like, but you wouldn't be able to make stuff at this scale if you didn't know what you were doing. So you have to acknowledge that not everyone's going to love it, but why are you questioning whether or not you're even good at it? And I'm just like, you know, that it's very generous for you to say that, but there's just always, that's, there's always going to be a part of me that has that dream, that has the fraud dream, you know, that has the, you know, it's, 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 it's what it's well beyond the emperor has no clothes. It's sort of yeah. like, and, and to some degree, it feels good when someone calls you a fraud because it validates that interior voice. It makes you feel a little less crazy. Mm -hmm. Like when people would be like, you suck. I'd be like, I know, don't I? Like for real, like, um, it, it yeah. felt good at first. And, but then once you open, once you open the doors to that, like, it's very hard to stop it from infecting you. God, that's so interesting. I'm, I love the way that you are framing this and talking about it because one of the things that I've really been working on processing in my own life is that idea of simultaneous truths that can be very opposite. It's where the idea for this podcast came from. The podcast is called Work in Progress because I I was asked to offer some advice to some young women and I, I think I offered them advice I needed to hear. And I said, you're allowed to be both a work, a work in progress and a masterpiece simultaneously. Oh, yeah, I love that. Because it's, you have to appreciate where you are and what you've done. And you also have to set goals and, and much like you, no matter what I've done, I always think about what I haven't done yet. And when I, when I achieve the next thing that I want, I stand around in the room going, is today going to be the day everybody figures right. out <laughs> that they don't want me right. here or that I don't know what I'm doing or that I'm bad at my job. And it's like, okay, well, I've made, I don't know, roughly 50,000 hours of television. So like, I must be pretty good at it, but th that doesn't ring true for me. I'm, I'm so convinced. And I wonder 
I wonder if the fraud fear or like that little infection that we seem to share that's like eating away at the back, no matter what, what success looks like in the foreground. I wonder if that is kind of the, the genetic, the emotional genetic makeup, or I guess the emotional version of a genetic makeup of, of an artist who's also a sensitive, because it isn't lost on me that I've had conversations like this with some people who are like us, who really care about the, the messaging in the midst of the creation, in the midst of the, of making the art, in the midst of fulfilling the childhood dream of loving reading Watchmen and then getting to make it as an adult. That's, that's a story that has a purpose. That's a story that, that roots for people. And so I wonder if, if some of the, the sensitivity maybe is why you find the sensitive ones fighting so hard for other people out in the world. Yeah. I, I, I think that's an interesting perspective and obviously there, there's a range of it, right? There's not, I mean, what do I know? I'm not a, you know, I'm not, I'm not an anthropologist or a behavioral psychologist, but I would, the way that I see the world is everyone is a sensitive and there's, and some people are just much better at stuff, like stuffing it down and keeping it separate. But I think that mm. it's very difficult to go through the experience of, of life and not feel things quite intensely. Mm. I think if you're raised in an environment where the volume is always super loud, you find things to shove in your ears. Yeah. Um, and sometimes those things calcify and you can't ever get them out again. Mm. Um, but, but like, and other people are like, I, I can deal with the volume. You know, I don't want to turn it down. I want to hear it all. Even when it's, even when it's irritating, even when it keeps me awake at night, like I, it, it helps me to hear it. There's a, you know, like, and, but, but there's, there, we all hear it, you know? Um, yeah. And so I, I do feel that I, I'm certainly in, in the list of adjectives that people who know me would use to describe me, I think sensitive is, is one. And that word cuts both ways, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the, the kinder side of it is, 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 you know, he's a real sensitive guy, you know, and then the other side of it is like, wow, you're being really sensitive right now. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, so I think that that idea of like, you know, being able to, being able to kind of put on your armor when you need it, um, Mm. but also being able to take it off when you don't, that's the, you know, that's the practice. And I find that my best work comes when my armor is off. Um, once it's finished, then it's time to put my armor on again, because, you know, what's, if you're, if you're, if you're doing it right, um, you know, not everybody's going to like it. Um, you know, And, uh, I say out of one side of my mouth, I want things, I want to do things that haven't really been done before. I want to be provocative. I want to reflect the world as a messy place that is, doesn't really have rules and, um, and is often confusing and the endings are ambiguous at best. And then, and, and I want to do that. And then when people are like, I don't like ambiguity, I should be like, well, you know, that's, sorry, that that's the way that it works. And instead I'm like, you don't? Oh, like that makes me really sad. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, and then I go back for more and, you know, just repeat the process. I think that you have to kind of forget 
how painful the, the, the birth was. And I don't, I only use that metaphor uh, under understanding that I'm a man and I'll never truly experience what it is, but there's, there's simultaneous pain and beauty. Um, and, um, mm-hmm. and that, but then it's not over, right. You're in, in this new phase of, it's not like the, the, the birth is just one, one phase of it. Now you're holding this, this baby and it's outside you and, and other people are seeing it and, and, and it, it is, it is growing and it has a mind of its own and you can nurture it, but it is not you. Um, that I've, I've come to find particularly in the television space that is highly collaborative when, you know, uh, like this baby is ours, the more that I feel connected to the collective, um, the, 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 the less sensitive I am, the bad kind Mm -hmm. of sensitive. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, so, that that part of it is is really beautiful and awesome. And just to circle back to your initial question at the beginning of this foray about writing, about why is it that some people actually do it and other people just want to do it and don't do it? I think the answer is like, start to try to find people who will pull it out of you. You know, some people, most people, I think write better in collaboration. Um, the hardest thing to do is to write alone. And so that idea of saying like, I'm going to go out and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a, a tennis player versus I'm going to be a basketball player. One thing is a team sport and the other is all about the individual. And so if you can mm-hmm. find other people who want to write or take a class um, where you all sit around and talk about each other's work, like put yourself, put yourself mm-hmm. in an environment uh, where there's a group, um, I, you know, that's when it's, it started kind of coming out of me. I started writing as a result of creative writing classes that I was taking in, you know, in fifth and sixth grade, not a lot, you know, not every middle school in America has a creative writing class. Um, I went to public, public school in Teaneck is like private school everywhere else. I mean, we had a great school system. Um, but, uh, but you can't always rely on, uh, on public education to foster that, that part of you. So you start creative writing classes, fifth or sixth grade, that's around 12. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned your job at the movie theater at the Odeon. You were 14 when you started working. That's right. right? Yeah. uh Was that? Did your parents suggest that you get a job or were you like chomping at the bit to be around movies? Um, both, but the, but the primary driver was my, my folks got divorced when I was 11. My dad moved out and he had to study in our attic of our house and I wanted to move mm-hmm. up there um, and make it my bedroom because it was just, it was just cool. There was more space. It was the attic, like it was at the top of the house. I had more privacy away from, uh, you know, my mom and I was an only child. Uh, so it's not like there were other siblings to contend with, but I was like, I want, and, and my mom was like, it's not, you, it's, it's an, it's a study. Like if it's a bedroom, it needs to have carpeting and I'm not going to pay for the carpeting. We can't afford the carpeting. And I was like, if I pay for the carpeting, can I move up there? And she was like, yes. Um, but you're 14 years old and no one's going to hire a 14 year old. And so we went to the movies at the, it was at the RKO route for 10 plex at the time. And there was a help wanted sign. 
and I loved movies. And uh, so I applied for a job there to be an usher. And I had to fo- I had to get my parents to sign a work permit, which they did. And then they hired me. And so I worked as an usher um, for from 14 to 16 and then as a cashier, which was the more coveted spot because you got to sit down um, and, and handle money versus just ripping tickets and cleaning up movie theaters. Nobody wanted to do concessions because you smelled like uh, popcorn for days on end, <laughs> which is like, it's a really nice smell when you're at the movie theater, but it's not a, it's not a nice smell in your daily existence. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so I, I worked there for four years, basically my entire high school existence, um, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Sundays, and would pick up double shifts if and when I needed the money. But, uh, but during that time, I basically saw every single movie that came out between 1987 and 1991, but I saw them all out of order. So as you, as you referenced earlier, we had 15 to 20 minute long breaks um, in a four hour shift. And I, you, could time, you could sort of time your break whenever you wanted to, if you were on the manager's good side. And so if Pretty Woman was playing, for example, and these were the days where like Pretty Woman actually played in that movie theater for like eight months. It was so popular. Wow. That, um, that you, like, I would go on my first break, I would just go in and watch whatever 20 minutes of Pretty Woman were on. But then my next break, I'd be like, I, I want to schedule a different 20 minutes. Um, and so for a two-hour movie, you know, you would basically watch it in six, six to eight blocks of o- over the course of multiple days and shifts and, uh, and out of order. Um, and, and so every movie, even shitty movies, are great when you watch them out of order because you have to sort of figure out what the hell is happening. And so if you watch the beginning towards the end, you're like, oh, that's why he's so mad at her. (laughs) Um, Or if a character dies towards the end of the movie, every scene that they're in, in subsequent viewings has added power because you know that they're Mm going to die. They don't know. And so I started to realize that not that the story was important, but also the order in which you told the story changed the way everything um, that, you know, you could start in the middle and it would be infinitely more interesting than if you just told it in a chronological order. And then when I graduated, Mm. um, uh, when I graduated college, the first movie that I saw in Los Angeles was Pulp Fiction. We saw it in, in Los Feliz and it was sold out. And my roommate and I sat on the floor in the aisle um, and watched the movie. And as it was going, I was like, this is just like all those movies that I saw back in high school, but it's actually designed to be out of order. Like John Travolta gets shot and killed by Bruce Willis in the middle of the movie, but the entire third act is about John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson. And the movie ends Mm. with a conversation between the two where Sam Jackson is saying, I'm going to stop being a hitman now because God spared our lives and I don't eat pig. And John Travolta is saying to him, well, I don't think it was divine intervention. It was just a happy accident. And, and right at the moment that the opening of the movie loops back in on them, which is Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer holding up that restaurant. And then Sam Jackson subsequently talking 
Tim Roth into uh, leaving, you realize that all the power from that scene is derived from knowing that John Travolta is going to die. Everything that everything mm. that Sam Jackson is saying to him is is prophetic. You know that it's true because you just watched it happen. And so that's when kind of that was the the Karate Kid moment of I've just spent you know a month like waxing your cars. And now you're attacking me, Mr. Miyagi. And I know my body instinctively knows how to move in order because I've been waxing your mm. cars. That's kind of the moment where everything clicked. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be a good storyteller, but I think I know how to tell stories out of order and make that work. Um, and um, and that wow. was kind of the, you know, that was the beginning of like, the compulsion inside me to say like, again, it's, it's a mixture of hubris, right? Where it's sort of like the hubris of feeling like you, you know how to do something that you haven't really done yet. Um, but, um, mm. you know, that's, uh, there's nothing more thrilling. That's so cool. And it strikes me when you say that, that sure, there's a moment of hubris, but also I think it feels to me electric, like a, like when a, I remember science class as a kid, you know, and you look at the animation of an atom and it's like, imagine when that thing comes mm. online and all the little cells are buzzing and you know, they're going to make something. It's, it's like, it's a, it's a calling, you know, something, something turned on for you. And how cool, how cool to think that as you were watching Pulp Fiction, you realized kind of the what was an unobvious purpose of, of all those 20 minute breaks. It was, yeah. I mean, it, it was that moment again of, and then you listen to Tarantino talk about all the things that sort of inspired him. You know, he, um, mm. he obviously his experience of working in a video store, but not really having the formal training of, you know, of film school, but having been interested in, a very particular kind of movie and those all being his influences and then generating, you know, high art, you know, what, what we would call, you know, masterpiece or, you know, Oscar caliber material, but mm. from the dregs of, you know, B movies and grindhouse flicks and old Kung Fu and, and, yeah. and, and sort of like it Italian horror movies, you know, he basically, those were, that was the, those were the ingredients of the stew for him. And it is this sort of idea of, of, um, there's this guy, Kirby Ferguson, who has these great YouTube, YouTube videos called everything is a remix. And, um, and it mm. kind of, it, it, it starts by just talking about how we understand the word remix in the, in the construct of music, um, and different, you know, bass licks being reincorporated into other songs. And then obviously in, in once you get into hip hop, literally sampling um, uh, old music in, to make new music. Mm -hmm. And, and then he starts to kind of expand that idea into, you know, popular culture and movies and television in terms of ideas. And, and I think that that, that feeling of, you know, all the, all the building blocks are there. All the Legos are there disassembled in the box and they're mm. all, but they're all from different Lego sets and nobody really wants you to make the thing on the box. 
you know, they want you to use the Legos in the box from the space set. And you can, why can't you combine that with the, you know, with the Dungeons and Dragons set? And so you start kind of mixing everything up together. And that's where the real interesting stories lie. And so your, what was curated for you or what speaks to you is the sort of broad range of, of different and interesting things. And so you, mm. you have, um, like, you have someone who's basically writing like Twilight fanfic and that becomes Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Like, um, you know, like that to me is the kind of like, is a very specific Venn diagram of I'm really interested in, you know, in, in, in sexy romance and vampires, but what if they didn't have to be vampires? Um, like, and, and so on and so forth. And so I think that um, like everything is a remix, but in the process of finding the things that really turned you on um, and then kind of amplifying mm-hmm. them and sticking them together in new and interesting ways, you can actually generate something that feels very new out of old parts. And it, it strikes me when you talk about, you know, Tarantino and his story and his talking about how he didn't go to film school, but, but he, he kind of gave himself an education in it and you gave yourself an education in many Lego pieces hmm. at the movie theater, but then you did go to NYU film right. school. So what, what was it like? You know, I mean, it's just over the GW, but like moving from Teaneck into the city, going to NYU, were you making movies there? Were you still watching a ton of movies? Is, is there some really important lesson from that time period that still stands out to you? Well, I, I'm, you know, I'm really glad that I went to NYU. First off, the experience of of living in the city was incredible. Like I said, we were, you know, we were a solid middle-class family, but of relatively limited means. So I had to graduate. We only had the money to go to, for me to go to NYU for three years. And uh, so I, I graduated in three years just as a result of taking like massive amount of credits. And um, so mm-hmm. I wish that I had gone there for four years because I, I do think that the experience of, you know, of living independently amongst like-minded people with common interests from the ages of 18 to 21 or 22, like, that's a really incredible thing. You know, the opportunity, you may, you may have been defined in a certain way when you went to high school. You start to become mm. a reflection of the way that others see you. And that can, that can trap you in all sorts of ways. Um, I, Hmm. I feel like I found my people in high school. Um, and so at least I had a better sense of who I was, um, in terms of my own personal identity moving into college. But I, the older I get, the more I realize like what a special thing that was. And I think college Hmm. was an opportunity. It was so specifically curated to say, you know, it, it's NYU Film School. Here's 250 people who are from all over the country, but they're all into almost exactly the same stuff that you are. And you're just going to sit in rooms with these people all day, both formally and informally. And, you know, and mm-hmm. so the classes are great because you're seeing movies that, you know, that you traditionally wouldn't have seen, foreign movies probably for the first time, and certainly you know, classic films. But then like, 
you know, I remember Barton Fink came out during my, my, my NYU orientation in September of, of 91. And so a, a bunch of us were just huge Cone Brothers fans. And we just went to the Angelica in the village and watched Barton Fink. And then afterwards mm. we went and t- like, we went to somebody's like dorm room and talked about it for three hours. And then, and then somebody had a laser disc of Blood Simple and you know, and we 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 watched it, and so and so. I think that idea of just basically surrounding yourself with others who love what you love um, was mm. was of tremendous benefit to to me, um, and just the energy. Did I make movies? Yeah, like I mean, um, I think that I I went into NYU wanting to be a, a, a writer director, and emerged from NYU with the knowledge that I was not a good director, but I was an, I, I was an okay writer. Um, and, uh, mm. but also you learn how to do everything. So you learn how to do sound, um, and sound mixing and sound editing and sound recording. And you learn how, how uh, about the camera and the lenses and the lighting. And so I think that although I, um, I couldn't walk onto a set right now and um and be a competent gaffer i have an appreciation for what the gaffers do because i did it um mm-hmm. and i under you know i know that there are directors or even producers who are like why is it taking so long why is it taking 45 minutes for us to get this shot i know why you know and so i think that the experience of having done it all and learned it all unfortunately I went, I went to NYU between 1991 and 1994, which was the year, 94 was the year before they went digital. So we were still shooting all of our projects on film. Mm. You would send them to Kodak. They'd be developed on film. Yeah. We would cut on a Steenbeck, you know, machine with literal a razor blade and tape to make edits. And God, it's so romantic and, to and me. And we recorded our sound on a Nagra um, uh, you know, yeah. which was that, t- and you had to sync it. And it was like, it was unbelievably, you know, comp- complicated and then rendered entirely, not just antiquated, but it was like all of those skills that I had learned were dinosaurs. They just, they were, it, it was like, yeah. it was irrelevant as, as the digital age basically like washed over us. But I did have a laptop and, and so writing you know, that, that didn't, that didn't change. Um, and, uh, so a lot of the skills that I, that I learned, you know, what is now close to 30 years ago, um, in college, um, are, are, are on antiquated equipment that nobody uses anymore, but the, but the experience of the tactile nature of, of editing, um, like it's something that I, that is very romantic to me. I think it's sort of like, you mm. can, you know, you can make soup in a food processor, but there, but, but you can also like chop the vegetables yourself. Like, um, uh, mm. and I think that there's something to be said for process, um, uh, that I, that I really appreciate. And, um, and, and so when you hear people like Christopher Nolan, you know, talk about film, you know, uh, actual shooting things on film. And the argument basically like devolves into, well, how does it look? And can, 
you know, the, the digital is so good now and, and digital processing is so good now that I, I challenge you, Christopher Nolan, you wouldn't even be able to tell the difference between something that you shot in a 70 millimeter camera um, and, and something that, that we render digitally. And that, that's besides the point. There's just something to be said for the tactile nature of, of the way that it used to be done. Mm-hmm. And it slows the process down a bit. Um, uh, but it's, um, but it's, it's, you, you can't argue with the result. I mean, Christopher Nolan has yet to make a, a bad movie. So I guess we can, we can start giving yeah. him a hard time when he makes a bad movie. I think it makes me nostalgic too, because, you know, when I got my first show, we were shooting on yeah. film and I just, I did, I loved what it looked like. I loved all the tactile elements to it. And I think it feels so emotional for me because I I grew up here in LA and my dad, you know, until he retired was a photographer. Oh really? And I had to work for, yeah, I had to work for him every summer and I had to run film and his studio was across the street from the A&I lab on right. Highland. And I would run film over there back and forth all day. And my dad taught me how to edit Mamiya three by five film. I would sit there with a yellow grease pencil and a loop on a light box. And he would say, I want you to go through and edit these. Tell me why they're good. Tell me why they're bad. You know, pick the best photos. And then he'd take a red grease pencil and go over my edits and show me his edits. Wow. And it was like this cool thing where he'd say, did you notice this? Do you see what this person's face is doing here? And look at this thing. And, and, you know, retouching back then was insane. I mean, it was painting. Right. And, and so I don't know, I get it. It's like, it was a slower process, but there was something more precious about it. Yeah, no, it's. When it was, when it was less easy to capture everything, what you captured really was so intentional. Yeah. And this is, this isn't to say that, um, that it sucks now. I think that the, you know, the, 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 the great news about where we are now is that anybody can become an expert if they're willing to put in the time. Yeah. And I think it's, it's awesome that the things that used to take you and your father hours, if not days to accomplish can now be done in seconds on an app. Um, because Mm -hmm. it's that, because it's because of access, right? It used to be that only you, like you had to buy all of this equipment yep. in order to be able to do that. Now, anybody, you know, it's three ninety nine to download one of these apps or, or something like that. And so mm-hmm. I think that the, I, you know, that, that, that's a wonderful thing. I agree with that. And, but I, but I do think that it's like, you know, taking time with something, you know, um, you know, doing it slowly, it does, it does put you in a zone that is um, that mm. is much different than the zone that we're used to now. We shot Lost, you know, um, all six seasons of it on film, mm. and and so it would take um, it would it would take thirty six hours of turnaround between when the canisters were sent from Hawaii back to LA to di- digitize them into the Avid when we could edit and multiple times over the course of those six years, the, the negative was exposed, um, in, in transit. And so we would have, I would have to call up Matthew Fox and be like, dude, the good news is you were great yesterday. The bad news is it's gone. It's gone. We don't have it. It's (gasps) gone. And I think that 
as insane making as that is, it's it's devastating for the entire crew when they hear something like that happens. Mm -hmm. But it's also like you hold the film with a certain degree of preciousness, you know, where it's sort of like, oh, you know, check the gate, check the gate so that there weren't any light leaks. So there is this kind of like delicacy in terms of the way that you're handling everything that I, that I certainly Mm -hmm. miss. Um, Again, uh, you know, a generation from now, no one will be alive working in this medium who remembered shooting stuff on film. Everybody will have come into the business at a time when that isn't really done anymore. But um, but mm. you can't argue with the results. Yeah. Well, and and to your point, it's there's nostalgia and there's innovation, and both matter. Yep. You know how cool is it that any kid anywhere who has a smartphone can be a filmmaker now? It is. It's it's the coolest you know? thing ever. I mean, it doesn't mean that all of them should be making movies, but I'm glad that all I'm glad right. that all of them are trying. <laughs> Same. So, what happens after NYU? You graduate in three years. You talked about how you moved to Los Feliz. Pulp Fiction rocked your world. How, how do you start working? Because, as you mentioned, we get to a point where you make six seasons of Lost. So, what's going on in between? Well, I mean. So I'm 21 when I move out to Los Angeles and and I meet JJ when I just shy of my 30th birthday around the time of my 30th birthday. So that's nine years. That's a long time. Um, So how'd you guys meet? We um, I was obsessed with Alias, the show and Felicity, the two shows that he did before Lost. And yeah, and by by then I was. I was a I was a working television writer for for close to five four or five years. And um and so I I had a friend um named Heather Caden who was an executive at ABC and she knew how I felt about alias and was trying to get me in a meeting with JJ so that he would hire me on alias Mm. and the timing, the timing was never working out because I was under contract for this show that I was writing for NBC at the time. And so finally, you know, I was, my deal was about to end, but there were no job availabilities on alias. Mm. Uh, Heather called me and said, um, look, we're developing the show about a plane crash that Lloyd Braun, who was the head of ABC at the time, was very passionate about. We 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 mm. we developed a pilot with Aaron Spelling. Um, for those listeners who aren't unfamiliar with Al- Aaron Spelling, he's a, a massive figure in the television business, particularly in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. But um, you know all the all the nighttime soaps. But then more in a more contemporary setting, 90210 and Melrose Place. And so, mm-hmm. but a very odd fit for the plane crash show. And so they were, they mm. were throwing out this, the spelling version uh, of the, of the script and were soliciting JJ to, to take a spin at it. And he was running Alias full time. It was also developing another pilot um, about bounty hunters so he said to ABC, if you can get me someone to supervise, I would consider, you know, executive producing the plane crash idea. And so Heather, call, Heather wow. called me up and said, you can come in and talk to JJ about this, but it's really just a way for him to get to know you so that he'll hire you on Alias. And I said, but he's not going to hire me on Alias unless I have 
ideas for the plane crash show. Like that's going to have to be the way, that's the only way that I can impress him. So she said, yeah, okay, like do your best. And so he and I met on a Monday afternoon and talked for two hours. And it was, you know, uh, back to the fandom conversation is I was such a huge fan of his and was, was very nervous about this meeting, but he immediately treated me like we were partners, which was very strange and wonderful and, um, and kind and generous. And then after that two hours, he was like, you know, do you want to, can you come back tomorrow? And, uh, and I said, I have a full-time job. I'm I'm writing, I'm a writer producer on this other show, but I can come over at night, you know, when we wrap. So basically from Tuesday to Friday night, I worked with JJ and a couple of the alias writer producers, um, from like 7 PM to 1 AM. Um, and then on Friday night, Friday night, we delivered this outline to ABC and then on Saturday morning, Lloyd Braun called me in, at home. I'd never spoken to him before. And he was like, we're making this show. And that was the first week of February of 2004. And then we delivered the pilot, the two-hour completed shot pilot. We shot a two-hour pilot um, mm. uh, the, uh, the this week, it, the, the, it was the end of April. Uh, my birthday is on April 24th. So it was the day after my birthday, April 25th. We wrapped in Hawaii and then we had about five days to edit what was essentially a movie. And then we delivered it to ABC. So it was 13 weeks from meeting JJ to here's the two hour thing. Um, and then obviously my life changed quite radically but to back up and tell the story out of order, <laughs> the first five years of my L- L.A. existence were was me saying, this is a business. Like, the art part is going to be hard enough. I want to make cool stories. I want to make art. I want to make movies and TV shows. I want to write. But this is a business. And the one thing that they didn't mm. really teach me at NYU was that it's an industry, you know? And so what, how do I, how can I learn how it works? You know, this, I keep hearing the word industry, like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And so the first year I was out here, um, I worked, uh, at an agency. I first started in their mailroom and, uh, um, and then, uh, I, I got put on an agent's desk and he was a literary agent. And so he represented writers and I got to read lots and lots of scripts. And I also learned why did the agent that I worked for, why did he sign some writers and reject others? Um, Why were some of his writers Mm -hmm. getting jobs and others weren't? And he let me listen in on all his calls and he was selling. Agents are the intermediaries between the talent and the buyers, in this case, the studios. And Mm -hmm. so then I became kind of enamored with the studios. I was like, why are these guys, what, what are they thinking? So then I, I, I went and worked for an executive at Paramount and I did that for a year as his assistant. And so I got to learn things from the, from the studio side. Um, and that was quite fascinating. And then, but the, but the, but that felt, I was like, I don't want to wear a tie to work every day. This is feeling very corporate to me. And I don't want to be a studio executive. Um, so I 
uh, got a job as a creative executive for a producer on the Paramount lot, this guy, Alan Ladd Jr., who ran uh, 20th and MGM, greenlit Star Wars, Blade Runner. You know, he had just won the Oscar for Braveheart when I started working for him. And so I got to learn how to make and develop movies from, from, a, from a producer side. So kind of now I did a year with an agent, uh, a year with a studio executive. I did two years uh, working with Alan Ladd Jr. At, at, to learn how to produce. All that time I was writing. Um, and I finally wrote a piece of material mm-hmm. that, uh, that I thought didn't suck. And I entered it into a screenwriting competition uh, under a pseudonym, just in case anybody that I knew read it. And it, and it, and it got, you know, fairly far along. Like, um, it, there were like 5,000 submissions and I got a letter saying, you know, you've made the quarterfinals and then another letter saying you've made the semifinals. And I was like, okay, so now there were 5,000 submissions. I'm in the top 50 the next letter that I get is either going to say you're a finalist or it's going to say you're done. And if it says you're a finalist, then good for me. But if it says you're done, then I'm going to, then I'm going to ignore the, the, the positive reinforcement of being in the top 50. So I'm going to make my move right now. Mm-hmm. And I sent an email to everybody that I befriended over the course of the previous five years. And I said, I want to be a writer and I think I want to be a television writer. And I know that no one's going to hire me to do that. Um, but is there some kind of apprenticeship, like a PA, a writer's PA or a writer's assistant that I can be? And I'm, 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 you know, I'm smart and hardworking and I've saved up enough money that you can underpay me wildly, but I'm really hungry to do this. And, um, and within about an hour of me sending that email out, my friend, Julie Pleck, um, emailed me back and she was like, she was working for Kevin Williamson at the time. He had just created a show after Dawson's Creek called Wasteland. And he, and she was like, we're, we, we need a writer's assistant, but you need to start on Monday. And this was a thir- a, like a Thursday afternoon. So I went in, I spoke to Laddie. He said, Vi can Dios. And then I started at Wasteland as the writer's assistant that Monday. And that was, that was the beginning of my, my, my professional life as a, as a television writer. And that was, I want to say 97 or 98. And, uh, through a series of, of unfortunate events for a watch, uh, for Wasteland, but fortunate events for me, I became a writer on that show and got agents as a result of being on that show. Then it aired, it was quickly canceled. And so, uh, I, I had sort of like, I, I had leveled up, but I was unemployed. Uh, fortunately, I got hip, hip pocketed by a couple of agents at CAA, and they got me a meeting with Carlton Cuse, who would later become my mentor. And uh, he was running a show called Nash Bridges, starring Don Johnson, mm-hmm. who I was obsessed with because I grew up with Miami Vice. And oh, yeah. um, I binged two seasons of Nash Bridges back when you could only binge on video cassette. Uh, <laughs> and I went in and interviewed for that job and they offered it to me in the room and I took it. And so I, I worked on the final season of Nash Bridges. And then uh, after that, I worked for three years on the show called Crossing Jordan, which was a NBC procedural with uh, Jill Hennessy and Miguel Ferrer. And that was an incredible experience because again, I learned a lot from the showrunner, this guy, Tim Kring. 
And, uh, but more importantly, that was a show that was beginning. So I came on right after the pilot. So Nash Bridges, I came on in season six. It was already, it was a well-oiled machine to figure out how to, Mm. every television show is like, you're kind of building the machine as you, as it's running. Um, That's why I think Mm -hmm. so many shows catastrophically fail in their first season because, you know, you you have to lay the track in front of the locomotive and it never stops. Um, So I got that experience on, on crossing Jordan and, and Tim just gave me a tremendous amount of responsibility. So I got to spend a lot of time on the set and started working with the actors and, um, and figuring out how to, how to get the budgets down. And, um, and he started putting me in the editing room and go and let me go to mixes. And so I, I really got to learn how to, how to show run, um, uh, under, under Tim's tutelage. And so in the third year of crossing Jordan, that's when I got the call from Heather about meeting JJ and we are now caught up to, um, the, the, you know, I'm now 30 and, um, and lost happens. And, you know, I would not, I would say I was, I'm not being self-deprecating. I'm just telling you the God's honest truth. I was still woefully unprepared. I was still way, way, way not ready for, for that, um, on every level imaginable, but you know, um, I did it anyway. (laughs) It was, uh, it was too late to stop the train at that point. Yeah. But I, I would also say that how can you ever be prepared for something like right. that? You know, lost is a lightning in a bottle experience. Right. I, I don't, I don't know how a person feels ready to do that. Yeah. What, what was it like, you know, cause you talk about it's 13 weeks from sitting down with JJ to finishing the pilot. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like the night that it, airs for the first time did, did you watch it live on tv or was it like too intense to do that what's the experience yeah jj had a party over at his house um and it aired on a wednesday night at eight o'clock and at the time abc was the last place network in 2004 and that, that's why they took a number of a big swings the conventional thinking at the time was that people didn't want to watch serialized television shows. They wanted self-contained procedural dramas because that's what everybody was watching. And that year they did Desperate Housewives, Grey's Anatomy, and Lost all in the same year. We were the first show out of the gate to premiere. And they do research to basically estimate what the audience is going to be. and. Um, and so at JJ's party, Tom Sherman, who is an executive at ABC, was basically like, if we can get 7 million people to watch the show tomorrow and we hold on to, you know, most of them, we may get a back nine. You know, we had, we had a 13 episode order Hmm. and, uh, we, we were like, okay. And at that point, we had written six of the 13 episodes and I was very unhappy um, and overwhelmed with the logistics of running the show that was shooting in Hawaii that had no sets that had a massive cast and a serialized story engine that was largely mystery driven. And JJ was gone. He was off um, prepping mission impossible. Uh, uh, And so I was, 
on my own. And I remember when Tom gave me that information thinking I would be okay with, I'm, I'm proud of the, the episodes that we made, but I'd be okay if the show gets canceled because the pilot's really cool. And let's just be like, um, let's just be like a cult classic that never was. And then the next morning at like 6.30 AM, my phone rang and I was like, immediately my heart started racing because I, nobody calls you that early if the news is bad. And, uh, and they were like, mm. uh, 17 million people watched the show last night. And, and it broke all the records that ABC had had. <laughs> they would be broken again five nights later when Desperate Housewives premiere. But at the time it was like, and I've told the story before, but it's worth telling again. I kind of, I went into the office and because we had to work, you know, I mean, we were like, you know, we were in the middle of it mm -hmm. and all these baskets of muffins started showing up. Like people were just sending like, like congratulations. <laughs> that was like all the rage in 2004. People were just all sending congratulatory muffins. And I was just, Carlton actually started working that week. So he had just come on to the show because I needed help. I needed a partner. And I went into his office and there were like, I swear to you, like eight baskets of muffins just sitting there with like these pretty bows on them. And I just started crying. And I was like, I don't want to make any more of these. We're just going to have to, we're going to have to keep making these things forever. That's 17 million people. Oh my God. I, it was just, I couldn't even wrap my brain around that number. It's just so many people. I mean, so many. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and he was like, well, I hear you. Let's go work. Let's go break the story for episode eight. Um, and, uh, and thank God for that guy. Uh, um, because, uh, those were, those were dark days. I mean, it, it, it feels like I'm not grateful. Yeah. I am so grateful to lost for everything, but the, I do feel like the story, this story is one that is when I talk to other colleagues who have enjoyed immense success uh, is not that unique because with the success, you know, we've always wanted mm -hmm. success, but then when it actually comes, that feeling in your body of, uh oh, now what? Is like is 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 mm -hmm. it's, it's it, it can be quite terrifying, um, and yeah. uh, so I feel like it's important to, to to say that there was a lot of joy. Um, that came later or that I was experiencing the joy before the show actually aired, but that special time when mm. you're making something just for you and your friends it, where you kind of pretend that no one else is ever going to see it, even though, you know, that that's why they're mm -hmm. giving you all this money to make it in the first place. But then, then it's ready to go out there into the world. It's, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's paralyzing. It's, you know, it's, it's, I've gotten yeah. used to it over time, but it, that, that was just like the magnitude of it was too much. Well, and I think, you know, to your point, it's a both and it can be incredibly gratifying. You can feel incredibly grateful and it can be kind of traumatic and, and nobody really thinks success, especially in our industry could be traumatic, but the way that I've tried to explain it to people when I've had conversations about it is think about how crippling expectation can be in your family or the expectation can be from your partner 
or or expectation can be when you are, I don't know, getting a doctorate or or doing some huge project at work. Imagine that amount of expectation in your case from 17 million people. Like that's enough to break your brain where you go, okay, well, I know the pilot's really good and I know these first six episodes are really good because we've just been making them. But now there's going to be these fan forums and chat rooms and everyone's going to have an opinion. And and how do I keep making something for the story rather than to try to use the metaphor you said earlier, keep laying that track in front of the train so that I keep meeting these people's expectation. How can I meet the expectation of 17 million people who each have a different desire? It, it's like, it makes, it makes me feel on my insides when we're talking about this, like scrambled eggs. So I, I feel for you immensely. It's like, I'm giddy for you. And also I'm so scared of the thing that you're talking about. And I, and I have to tip my hat to you, you know, when we had that first conversation at the conference, I was like, oh, I like that guy. Like, I like the way he thinks about the world and we're going to be friends. <laughs> and, and in researching for this, I was like, oh God, I really like this guy because you, you have been on record so open about this and, and you, you talked about in an interview, you said something that I'd like to quote back to you that this was a profound disconnect from the universe, a total sort of exhaustion, a desire to not do anything, a loss of appetite. And, and, you know, you go on to just talk about the idea of feeling so exposed and and you said it earlier, you know, and, and, and in this same interview, you mentioned that, that fear of the emperor has no clothes. And, and I think it is, profound to be so open. And I think especially if I can slow clap you, especially important for men in positions of immense success to talk about feelings and vulnerability, because there's this idea that like, yeah, bro, you fucking made it. Everything's great. And, and it can make success in any relative experience that anyone listening might have it to that success can make you feel so lonely. So I, I just, I really appreciate the way that you've been willing to be so open about the experience and the duality of it, like the excitement and the like, wow, I got everything I ever wanted. And I don't know if I want it. I don't know if I can hold it. Well, I really appreciate you saying all that. And I, and I, you know, I'm very, I've become comfortable talking about it over time just because I've talked about it so much. Mm. But, but I think that there's a legitimate reluctance to talk about it because you feel guilty about saying anything negative about that level of success. Um, Cause mm -hmm. it certainly from the outside looking in um, the idea of like understanding how lucky and blessed and, and fortunate I am to have been able to achieve my dream. But I think that, not enough. I wished that when it happened to me, more people had been were talking about what happens on the other side of your dream, and um, mm. and because it, it because it can be quite de debilitating if some if if a specific goal is basically driving you, you know, if you're basically like I'm going to climb Everest, you know, the story tends to end with you summiting Everest, right? The end. 
But yeah. but for most people, the the really interesting challenge begins with, oh my God, I trained for this thing. I I I, I committed. I made all these sacrifices for this. Now now what am I? Now that I've done it, what am I supposed to do? Um, you know, what am I, I, I basically achieved my life's ambition at the age of 30, like times a hundred, like I had never imagined that it would be scaled in the way that, so everything, everything else is just going to be less than this. I've never done heroin. Mm -hmm. Um, but my understanding of the heroin addiction, I used to be a, a, a cigarette smoker. So I know um, tobacco is nicotine is pretty addictive, but people say that the first high that you get off of heroin, that every subsequent time you do it is basically kind of chasing that initial feeling. And I'm basically like, I've heard that, yeah. is that, <clears throat> is that what my life is now going to be? Like, I'm just sort of trying to mm. iterate the feeling that I had when, you know, when I walked out of JJ's office for the first time and he said to me, do you want to do this together? And I suddenly realized I was at the top of Everest. Like I was, I was actually there. Um, And so I was like, I'm going to talk about that. And I'm going to, you know, this is just one person's experience. And um, because the story that you hear is that I'm supposed to kind of thump my chest and, you know, and be humble about it, but just talk about, you know, how great and awesome it is. And it is, you know, it is, it is great and awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I talked about how exciting it was to be making Lost all the time, uh, particularly during the first year of it. Um, but as time went on, I felt like it was really important to start to message the other part too, even knowing that there would be people out there who said, Wah. oh, poor Damon, poor, <laughs> poor, poor, poor multimillionaire who's achieved all of his dreams. At first, I'd be like, it's not multi, it's barely millionaire. And I have to pay taxes on that money. <laughs> it's not what you yeah. think. And it's just yeah. money. You know, money is important and it gets you a lot of great things. But like, you know, I want to I want to communicate how I'm feeling on the inside. And I was very careful not to use the word yeah. depression because I think that there's there's a, you know, this was situational this this depression it was very specific to what was happening at that moment in time in my life people who really struggle with depression that is that that's something that's happening independent of what's happening externally um but i was sad Mm -hmm. and i was experiencing the symptoms of depression as you described you know not sleeping loss of appetite you know uh like I i felt like there was cotton in my ears you know everybody sounded a little bit muffled um, and, uh, and I didn't want to medicate because, uh, I sort of felt like I, if I know what the problem is and it's not chemical, then I shouldn't be taking, you know, uh, pills so that I can go in and write episodes of lost. Like that sounds upside down. So I do want to be, you know, very mm-hmm. careful about talking about what was happening, um, for me, at least clinically. And not not confusing that, but more importantly, like, and this isn't mm-hmm. saying like, don't don't be successful, kids. It sucks. It's the greatest thing in the world. It really is. Like, it, there's there it, there's there's just there's emotional components to it that I think not enough people discuss. And I think because we don't discuss them, people feel so ill-equipped when they happen. 
you know, one of the sort of great adventures of my life experience in the last couple of years has been this, the way I think about it is almost in a metaphor of, of a complete circumference of a circle. And I think so many of us have been encouraged in the sphere of our life to really hold on to and identify with the positive, the successful, to make those things our identity. But if we turn our backs on the other portion of the sphere, we're not wholly embodied. And I think the more people can show up in a whole way and say, this was the totality of my experience. This was the stuff I expected, the joy at succeeding. This was the stuff I was completely ill-equipped for that like hit me in the back of the head, the depression and anxiety. Uh, you know, then, then when it happens to someone else, they're less surprised. I, I, I went through this recently with a friend who had a baby and she was like, you know, I didn't even realize that society just told me that I was going to have this baby and be so happy and so fulfilled and like everything was going to be perfect. She's like, and guess what? I still have anxiety. I'm still stressed out. I still fight with my husband sometimes. She's like, and my fucking baby doesn't sleep. And it's incredibly stressful. And I love my baby, but nobody told me that I was also maybe going to have a nervous breakdown because this is so hard. And and she's wound up talking to all these other young moms who are opening up about this stuff and getting more frank about it. And, and that has been such a solace for her. And so I guess it's why I, I lean into people who really want to share the, the full circumference of their experience. Cause I, I think it's, I think it's universal, even though the elements are different. And I think it can really be something that heals not just the person who's getting honest, but everyone around them who has the opportunity to, to learn from something real. Yeah. I think that's really beautifully articulated and, you know, just to, just to oversimplify it. I think that anytime you feel the pressure to feel a certain way, you know, where it's basically like Mm. this thing happens, you, you have a phenomenally successful television show or you have a baby or, you know, you win a race or you've won the lottery Mm. that you're, Mm. that you're like, I'm supposed to feel this way, you know? And if you don't feel the way that you're supposed to feel, then all the shame and guilt and confusion, what's wrong with me? Mm. Why am I not feeling this way? Like if, but if you can, if you can use your position to expand the understanding of how you're supposed to feel, if young mothers start to understand that the way you're supposed to feel after having a baby is anxious and confused and sleepless, then you, at the very least, you're taking the shame and the confusion, you know, off the table. You're not, you're not going to prevent those feelings from happening, but they, they will, you know, they fall under the rubric of normalcy. (laughs) And I think like Mm -hmm. for me, again, I, I can't, relate to, you know, post, uh, uh, postpartum feeling of, of, of having a baby. Um, but I, but I can say that the worst part of it was this feeling of being abnormal and being what's wrong with me Mm. that I'm so everyone else is sending muffins, but I don't want to eat the muffins, you know? And when I would say to people, I'm sad they would look at me like I was a crazy person um, or they'd get mad. And so I stopped saying it, you know, 
Um, of course I did. Mm. Like, uh, and then that just reinforces that shame right. or that something's wrong with me. Right. Do, do you think that wanting to look at the inward experience is, is that part of maybe what leapfrogged you after the whole incredible and, you know, tumultuous and beautiful and brutal experience that, that was making lost. Is, is that what drew you to the leftovers? Because I'll never forget. I, God, I loved that book so much. I think I read it in a day and a half. I just think Tom Perota is so brilliant. Yes. I think it is the most incredible exploration of just raw humanity. And I remember hearing it was being adapted and I was just like juiced about it. And, you know, I know so many people you, and you have it in your bio. You're like, that show's not as depressing as everybody thinks it was. I couldn't get enough of yeah. it. I was like, I just, I want to be in this world where people are just being so raw and honest. So what, what made you dive into that? Again, it wasn't a choice. It was a compulsion. So I, mm. I, when Lost was over, I was like, I'm never doing a television show again. You know, I'll go and like work on some movies and stuff. But it's like, I think back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, I was like, I can't chase that. I'll never do anything mm. like this again. And so uh, why bother? was sort of my my default thinking. And then I read Tom's mm. book, you know, and I had the same exact experience that you did, which was I was just floored by it. I mean, it made me sob. Um, and like, yeah. you know, I'm I'm not an easy cry, despite the, everything that we've been talking about. Like, it's not something yeah. that, that happens in my daily existence. And I, I almost never sob, you know, like the, you know, like the racked mm -hmm. can't breathe. But there were like multiple times in reading this book that I was just like, oh, this, I got to tap into this. This is, you know, this is, a, mm -hmm. this is a feeling that no one's talking about. And it also felt like I was moving through an experience of uh, grief is the wrong word for it, but like separation from the aftermath of Lost, um, mm -hmm. you know, the way that the ending of the show was processed, um, both by me and the people around me and the two things were getting very confused and I was on Twitter and spending way too much time on Twitter and, um, mm. and like all my armor was off when I read the leftovers and it just made me feel better because it was sort of like, Oh yeah, everybody feels like this, like to, to our conversation, which is sort of like, what if the entire world, like, basically had the hammer drop on them. 2% of the world's population disappears. There's no explanation. You're never going to get an explanation. And you now have to have to move on knowing that it could happen again at any moment. How could you ever connect? Mm. How could you ever connect with people knowing that they could be gone in an instant like that? But yet you do. Mm. And I was like, yes, I'm doing this. And so it turned out that HBO had already optioned it, and Parada was was he he was meeting other writers, showrunners to to do the gig. So I had to get I had to I had to get hired by him, which I loved being in that position because 
traditionally it was sort of like, Damon, what do you want to do? What, you know, what, what's your next project going to be? We'll, we'll do it. And so the idea of like being put in a position where I had to audition, um, you know, where I had to convince Tom that I understood his book, like was really good. And, uh, and I said to him, you know, traditionally they want to just punt on the author, you know, thank you for writing this amazing book. You're done. And I was like, you and I have to do this together. I know you've never been in a writer's room Mm -hmm. before, but it's you, it's your world. So I, I bring a certain level of experience, but, but you, it'll only work if you're there. And so Mm. that was the beginning of, you know, an incredible partnership. And then, you know, that partnership expanded to so many other incredible writers over those three seasons. Mimi Leader, whose name doesn't get mentioned nearly enough. She was really the other showrunner of, um, of the leftovers. She, She, her first episode, she directed the fifth episode of the first season and every, everybody on the crew was so overwhelmingly responsive to the leadership role that she took. We hired her as an EP immediately. Um, because uh, Leslie Lincoln Glotter, who had directed a couple of the other episodes, she had to go back to Homeland, and you know we were mm. we were we were rudderless and motherless, and um, and you know I can't say enough about what an incredibly impactful creative influence Mimi had on that show. Um, but everything just kind of started to click. We all understood because we had the book, you know, because we all had the same experience that you did. We unlike Lost, there was like a manual for like, you know, there was a text, a Bible for us to follow. Mm. Um, so it was, a, it was harder. It's never easy, but it, um, it was harder in some ways, but like never in the way of like, what are we chasing? We always knew what it was about. Right. Well, what an incredible thing too, to, to always have a true North when endeavoring into a creative space like that. Also just like pure fanboy moment. I'm such a huge fan of Mimi. So that's very cool uh, to just hear about she, your experience. She's on that show her. I'm like a little bit obsessed with her. Yeah, as, uh, that's a, what that's do, a good obsession to have. What do you think is so rewarding about adapting someone else's story? Um, I don't, I don't know if it's rewarding, you know? I mean, I think I know what you mean by the word rewarding, but I think like I would, I would say satisfying because I don't, you know, Mm. like I don't necessarily feel that the satisfaction basically comes from, again, to circle back to some, one of the things that we were talking about earlier, this remix idea, which is, you know, Parada is, he, my first exposure to The Leftovers was actually in the New York Times book review, a review of The Leftovers that was written by Stephen King. And in his review of The Leftovers, Whoa. which he raved about, he he said that it was the greatest episode of The Twilight Zone that had never aired. And so as a huge Rod Serling fan and Twilight Zone, but Rod Serling is a writer, creator, genius... And Stephen King, genius, and all of Parada's stuff prior to that, you know, from election to little children, um, uh, to the abstinence teacher, it was like everything just kind of, and so 
But there was a reason that Stephen King loved it. And it was the same reason that I love Stephen King books. And Tom Parada shouldn't be writing supernatural stories because he doesn't do that. He just moved out of his lane. And why does this feel like an episode of The Mm -hmm. Twilight Zone? Because Twilight Zone was not just strange and scary, but it was, it was, um, it was sociological and political metaphor for the times in which people were living. So the fears and anxieties that Rod certainly were writing about were not about monsters and demons and aliens. It was about communism and the fear of the other and, um, Mm. and the, you know, and, and uh, a closer analysis of what it meant to be American. Um, So all of those things kind of locked in and this all connects back to your question, which is why is it satisfying to adapt? And, and, And the thing is like, why is it satisfying to adapt? Because if you're not adapting, then you're not evolving. And if you're not evolving, you're going to get eaten by a faster animal. Um, mm. I, I, the reason that I want to adapt is because I'm paying back all of the things that inspired me. And so I'm openly acknowledging this mm. was not my idea. I'm bringing new, I'm making something new out of Tom's book, The Leftovers, because there are things that he probably never would have thought to have done moving beyond the first season, but those things were all inspired by Tom and, and the things that inspired Tom were things that he saw in the twilight zone or, or in a Stephen King book. And so we, we all have these, we are all cooking with the same ingredients. That's the satisfying part. Mm, I love that. And isn't it interesting that the twilight zone and Stephen King came around you, you know, you you got to remix those loves from your childhood. And then most recently, you've gotten to do it again with Watchmen. Yeah. Like all these things have have circled back for you in the coolest way. What what was that like? How, how did the timing, because obviously Watchmen was always in your future in a way. It was always in you from childhood. How, how did it suddenly happen in in your adult life as a as a creator what's what's the process of that i mean we could have a whole separate conversation about (laughs) about that and um i'll just you know again i'll overly simplify it by saying that over the over a five-year period warner brothers and hbo approached me you know two times to, to do a television adaptation of Watchmen. And I said, no, the first mm-hmm. two times. And the third time they asked me, um, I said, yes. And, and the difference bet- between the first two times and the third time was that I feel like if I'm going to do anything, it comes back to this idea of it doesn't feel like a choice. It feels like a compulsion. Every time that I've mm-hmm. been in my head and I've made a creative decision, it, it doesn't work out particularly well. But when I feel compelled to do it, where it's like, I have to do this, even if I, even if I don't want to, I have to, then it does work mm-hmm. out well because the compulsion is what, what drives you through the, the, the hard parts. And so the third time they asked me, essentially, I was, I was in the midst of doing a very deep dive on the writing of ta Coates. And so it started with Between the World and Me, which is one of the most mm-hmm. amazing pieces of writing that I've ever read. And I only read it. Unbelievable. I only read it so that I could virtue signal because everybody was reading it. And I was like, I guess I'm supposed to read this book. 
But when I read it, I was just like, it completely, I could feel like the world moving under my feet. I knew all of, mm. I knew all of the things that he was talking about, but I didn't know it and can never really experience it in the body that I'm, that I'm in. But somehow like, and so then I just was like, I have to read everything that this man has ever written and was in the process of doing that. And then he wrote all these incredible essays for the Atlantic. Um, they're, they're, they were subsequently compiled in this book called We Were Eight Years in Power um, and with all new introductions. But at the time, I just went and found them online. And he wrote this piece called The Case for Reparations, which, again, totally, there wasn't anything in it that I didn't know. But like now I knew. And once I knew, mm. I was like, I can't like I can't move through the world the way that I was moving through it b- before it was like mm-hmm. original sin. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, I feel as a bleeding heart liberal, this very corny entitled, you know, um, again, overinflated ego sense of, I need to get this out there into the world. Like I need to increase, how can I use my my power and my platform to broadcast everything that Ta-Nehisi Coates is writing about here. Um, and uh, so I, I reached out to him through his agents, like uh, at first, and and then wasn't hearing anything back. And then I, I heard him giving like a podcast interview where he was like, yeah, all these white people in Hollywood are trying to like connect with me, I think because they want me to bless their projects. And I was like, oh shit, he's right. That's what I'm doing. Um, and he, he sort of like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he kind of threw down the gauntlet and said like, if you like my writing, if, if it's changed you in some way, like just like whatever you do next should just incorporate some of those ideas. And in the process mm-hmm. of, of the case for reparations, he talked in one paragraph about the Tulsa massacre of 1921 and, um, and the, the carnage of, of Black Wall Street in Greenwood. And so I did a lot of research and, and I, I, I bought this uh, book called The Burning and I learned all about the Tulsa massacre. And I was astonished that this happened in the United States, that there was this mm-hmm. um, enclave of African-American exceptionalism and, um, and, um, and wealth in 1921 in Oklahoma. And then within the space of 24 hours, it was all decimated. And the, mm-hmm. and the real decimation, other than the loss of treasure and life and, and wealth um, over generations, is that it, the real decimation was that it was erased from history. Nobody knows about it. Like, um, certainly in my world, and I consider myself to be pretty well-educated and interested in history and particularly interested in, you know, um, in the history of the United States and contemporary history. And how was it possible that I didn't know that this happened? And then, yeah. and then they asked me the third time, you know, do you want to do Watchmen? And I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to somehow combine all of this into, cause Watchmen can hold this, um, Watchmen mm-hmm. is this like is a way to get eyeballs on Tulsa without doing a documentary about Tulsa, which people would not watch because they don't want to they don't want to know. It's like they don't want to look at it. Like so Watchmen can be a delivery mechanism for this, even though it's fictional. You know, Watchmen is fictional. Watchmen is one of those rare comic book um properties 
that can actually do real United States history and particularly when it's about power and authority and white supremacy and masking and the KKK, all of those ideas felt like they could really be held inside of, of Watchmen. And then it started Mm -hmm. to take on the energy that the original Watchmen had in the, in the mid eighties, which was it, it, it changed the way that people looked at superheroes And I was like, you can't just do that again now in 2019. And this was 2019 at the time. Because we already, because Watchmen already exists. So what, and also we're we're living in a, you know, superheroes are are all the, are are such a big deal in our culture. Let me ask some questions about masks and who puts them on and why and and what are the psychological mm-hmm. reasons for it that are in line with the same questions that the original Watchmen was asking, but maybe feel a little more contemporary um, that we have moved um, uh, 35 years down the line. Um, and, uh, and then we were kind of off to the races. So I'll, I'll tell you again, I'm, you know, I'm just telling you what the truth is. The compulsion to do it never went away. But while we were doing it, I was like, this is a huge mistake. This isn't working. It's a disaster. I'm, this is not my story to tell. I'm in over my head. And all of those things were true. And the only thing, the only reason that it did work was the collaboration. I mean, I was surrounded by so many incredible storytellers, starting from the writer's room and then all through production. I can't say enough amazing things about the actors and um, and how mm. much a part of the process Regina was and who is a director and a producer in her, her. in her own right, but kept it so honest mm. and so authentic. And, um, you know, I, the, the writer's room with a, with a couple of exceptions, you know, or two, two or three people that I'd worked with before everybody else was new and, um, and more importantly, nobody looked like me. Um, and, uh, and I was like, this is going to be great because I'm going to have this really inclusive writer's room with all these perspectives that are different than mine. And I'm really going to, going to listen and learn. And that was well-intentioned, but within like 48 hours, when it actually started to happen, it was hard to relinquish my power. Um, cause I was sort of like, oh, oh, I want to give you power without giving up any of my own. And that's not the way that it works. It's a seesaw, mm. you know? So as you make other people powerful, you're actually, your seesaw is going down. That's what real equality is, right? Like you, you want to be, you know, you want to be balanced. The, the, the seeding of my power was not something that, that went down easy. And I want to talk about that too, because when it starts to happen to you, you get scared and you get defensive and you, and you start to kick and, and punch and scream and yell internally. Uh, but then once it's over and the, t- and the teeter-totter is balanced, then in- truly incredible things start to happen. And that's mm-hmm. the only reason that the show worked. And uh, I get to be here talking to you on a podcast right now as if Watchmen was mine. But not only was it not mine because I adapted it from this masterpiece that was written by Alan and Dave in the mid eighties, but it's not mine because these, 
these other writers and directors and actors and and um, and costume designers and production designers and everybody who was on that show, oh my God, was was so compelled um, that when I watched it, it felt like I had nothing to do with it in, in all the best possible ways. So that's that was truly lightning in a bottle. And when it was over, I was like, I'm never doing that again. Um, but uh, you know, I'm I'm very 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 proud to have been a, a part of it. That just like, that makes me feel very emotional and motivated and like, I want to attack the day. So thank you for- Go get it. Thank you for that vibe. I, I, I'm curious, can I ask you a technical question? Because when I think about us talking about all of all of the sort of incredible like art and heart that goes into stories like this, I can't help but wonder about the change in the timeline. And we've talked about some of the technicalities aside from equipment and whatnot changing and innovating, we've also come into this space now where with streaming and and all these other ways to watch shows, do you as a writer, creator, producer, do you have to think about how to tailor the stories you tell to the new kind of like binge model, I'm going to sit and watch six episodes, or, or, or does that not invade your creative process? It's a good question, and the answer is yes. And um, and I do I do think that at least for me personally, I am now moving into a space both as a storyteller, but also as a story consumer of mm. of not wanting to do like sagas anymore. And by that I mean, mm-hmm. if you tell me if like Game of Thrones were to start now, you know. And, and the messaging that I was getting is, is that it's going to be seven or eight seasons of stories, um, of episodes. I'd be like, no, no, I'm just not doing it because there's so many things on my list already that I, that people are telling me that I have to see that are amazing. Not to mention things that I love that I want to revisit, like the idea of like watching Parks and Rec again or like, and, and so, I'm just basically like, no. Uh, and I find that I'm not the only one. I think that the the idea of the limited series of basically saying, can we just do this all in 10 episodes? Can we tell the whole story in 10 episodes versus over the course of five years? We should all be, mm. we should all be asking ourselves that question now. Like, um, just because you can stretch it out doesn't mean that you should. And... It's not that our attention span is shortening. It's that our time is becoming more valuable in terms of the way that we consume this stuff. And so mm. for me, it's it's basically like one and dones for the rest of my television career. Um, and, and more importantly, there's stuff that I'm committed to already, you know, that's grandfathered in like Stranger Things or, or Better Call Saul, mm. where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in. I'll watch these things to the end. But like- Let's be honest. Don't take Bob Odenkirk for six years. You're just being greedy. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I would rather watch him do like five different things than just play Saul Goodman for five, six years. And I know that he gets to do other things in his hiatus, but like yeah. it, like let's um, let's let's have simpler, more elegant meals and eliminate the buffet is my uh is is my thinking right now 
And uh, that isn't, again, to say that the shows of the past, you know, I'm, that, 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 that it's great that there's seven, eight, nine seasons of them. They're all there for our binging. But in terms of what we're making now, I can't really think of any reason to make make a, a, a five-season show anymore. I think it's arrogant. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there have been some incredible limiteds that I've watched recently and just loved so much. And, and it's tricky because part of me as a viewer wants more and part of me as a person who's so passionate about story loves when they quit while they're ahead. Well, if you, if you acknowledge that just enough is a thing that's achievable, which I don't think is true, right? The porridge is either too hot or it's too cold. You never, you never land on just right. You're just moving through it. Like mm. it's much better to be on. I want more of that than it is like, um, overstuffed. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just don't, you can't quit while you're ahead because you don't know when you're going to be behind. Mm. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. So, it sounded profound, but it, but it's no, also garbage. It, it sounded phenomenal. I'm like, that's good. That's like that. This is one of those moments where if it was Oprah interviewing you and not me, she'd be like, tweet it. Yeah. I'm going to go look outside the window. You know? That's what they always do on Oprah. They look, contem- <laughs> they look contemplatively out windows. I love it. So you're you're keeping yourself busy during this quarantine with a very cool project that I, I would love for the listeners to know about. Obviously, now they have a list of things to watch and binge if they, for some reason, have been living under a rock and are behind on some of your work. But talk to us about something, something, something murder. Oh, God. Um, I, I, I've never written prose before, um, like a, a short story or anything. Any, a short story or even anything approaching, you know, what novel writing is. Um, there are very good reasons that I've never done it. Uh, the first and foremost, the one that I mentioned to you earlier, which is I like to collaborate with other people and the idea of writing prose is very singular. You just like, you have to come up with an idea and then it, then it pops out of your fingers and, um, and you don't really get to bounce it off of anybody else. It just exists. Mm. And so, um, once it became very clear that we were going to be in our houses for a while, I felt like I needed to have some structure um, to my days that involved writing. And the only thing that would compel me to do that would be some kind of serialized story. But I, it was just going to come out one chapter at a time. At first, I, I wrote every day, then every other day. Now it's every three days. Um, and, uh, or every four days, it's become more sporadic because it's getting harder and harder, um, and feeling more and more like a job and less like, uh, a diversion because it's, it's a, mm. it's, it's a story, you know, it's gotta, you gotta, you gotta figure out how it's going to move. But, um, but I'm also using it to talk about some of the experiences that we're all having collectively and, Hopefully mm-hmm. it's a little snarky and fun and it involves uh, time travel. And the basic premise of the, of the story is as someone, again, who's a, you know, a, a self-professed um, bleeding heart liberal and massive progressive and Hillary Clinton supporter, uh, one of the things that a lot of my peers started saying as the, 
um, as the pandemic began was, oh my God, I, I wish that Hillary Clinton was president right now. And I, I say, well, of course I do too, but I'm not so sure that she wouldn't be having problems of her own. They would just be entirely different problems. Um, mm. and, uh, and so this, this story is about that. Um, mm. it's about, um, uh, a mom who is a particle physicist who is, who traveled back in time to make Hillary Clinton the president of the United States and her 12 year old son, uh, maybe he's 10. I can't remember. I think he's 10 or 11, maybe 12, uh, who also travels back, back in time. He steals her technology because he, he, the only world that he ever knows is one where Hillary Clinton was the president of the United States. And because the, because people are refusing to listen to her and shelter in place in that reality, she has turned off the internet and taken pe- and taken people's screen time away. And so this 11 year old has now stolen his mother's technology and he has traveled back in time to make Donald Trump the president of the United States without realizing that that's the reality that she was. So they keep rewriting each other mother and son, and uh, they're kind of caught in this loop and they're stuck as are we all. That's the basic, that's the basic Mm. gist of the story. Uh, Again, uh, I offer the caveat. I'm not, I am a, I am a professional television writer, a screenwriter, but I do not write prose. And so the idea of, of getting in uh, over my head uh, and trying to do something that I'm not particularly good at has has been quite a learning experience, and I apologize in advance for the result. But the good news is it's not very. <laughs> it, you, it, you only get three or four pages a day, so it's, a, it's not that, it's not that massive of an investment. Great. Well, that feels like a perfect time for me to ask you my favorite question. Um, as we talked about earlier, you know, the podcast is called Work in Progress, and so thinking about all this stuff we've been talking about. What comes to mind when you hear that phrase? What, whether it's personal or professional or, or really in any arena in your life feels like a work in progress to you? Um, I think it's, it all sort of boils down to, I'm interested in what I'm interested in. Um, and that's never going to change. It's my, it's my taste. Um, like I can't suddenly like as as much as I want to get into, I've always been like, I wish I knew more about world war two, you know, like it just Mm -hmm. seems like such a, Mm -hmm. but I'm just not interested in it. Like every time I, I try to read a book about it or watch a documentary about it, I'm just kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm not bored, but it's like, it's, it's not my thing. And so the work in progress is, Mm-hmm. beginning to really catalog and understand the things that I'm interested in because I think that range is probably a lot more broader than I thought it was. And so, again, mm-hmm. if you go back to um, uh, the genesis of Watchmen and the only reason that I did it was because of what ta Coates wrote, if you asked me, Am I interested in the kind of things that Ta-Nehisi Coates is writing about? I'd say, like, I care about those things, but that's not my thing. You know, that's not my lane. And then lo and behold, it was. And so doing a little bit, the work in progress is, um, 
is let's go back and like reverse engineer. Let's take apart the components of some of these things that I thought I was interested in Mm. and understand what I'm really interested in because that might open up the doors for some new possibilities. Because Mm. the last thing that I want to do is another television show about, um, about whether or not God exists or solving the great mysteries of the afterlife or exploring the thematic between um, uh, free will and, and, um, intelligent design that sort of populated, you know, lost in the leftovers to an extreme degree. But those things I'm, I still think about all the time. So they're going to, they're going to work their way into whatever I'm doing. But if I can combine those flavors with some, some other new stuff, um, that's the work in progress. Like I have to, I, Mm -hmm. I feel like I know what I, the food that I like, but I have to keep trying new food. Um, uh, and uh, that can be scary. It can give you a stomach ache or an allergic reaction if you're not careful. Yeah, but to your point, we've got to try. You've got to keep evolving. Yeah, you got to. Because otherwise, what are we doing? Yeah, but at the same time, like you were talking about nostalgia earlier, it's sort of like, you know, the Rolling Stones, you know, played um, for the uh, the stay-at-home benefit the other night. And and, and I was like, mm. they played You Can't Always Get What You Want, which is a song that they wrote four decades ago. And yeah. I, I'm down for that, you know? I, I, I don't want to hear Rolling Stones playing stuff off of steel wheels. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a good album, but like, you know, And so I think that this idea of it's okay to celebrate what you're good at and to continue to, to, to do it. That's what people want to hear. But I, Mm. but I do think you, you do have to also, also be a a bit more experimental and that's, that's scary because sometimes it's going to not work. Um, but you gotta, you know, you gotta do it anyway. Well, I'm, I'm fired up. Thank you. Do it. Go light some Thanks for fires. spending the morning Be with safe me. about it. My pleasure. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. <laughs>